Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. So we celebrate today the Lord's table. I want to draw your attention to Matthew 1, 21. We've gone through this chapter in last year, right? And uh, But I want to come back to verse 21 as my thoughts with you before communion together today. And I use the word celebrate communion very intentionally this morning. Today is a continuous celebration from the very beginning of the service through to the end. But look at Matthew one twenty one with me. And let me read this short verse and we will unpack it. The angel is speaking to Joseph in his dream, giving him clear and definite instructions, speaking about Mary, his betrothed wife. And he says, she will bear a son... And you, Joseph, shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. I really want to hone in on the last part of this verse with you this morning. For he will save his people from their sins. I cannot think of a better text and a better thought and a more succinct passage to prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, to rivet our minds on what Christ has done for us in the cross and the resurrection. I want to unfold for you this morning four realities of the salvation that we enjoy, that we share, that we bask in. Four realities of salvation. Reality number one is the source of salvation is Jesus and Jesus alone. For he, it's literally for he himself. Not for he and you helping him. It's for he himself will save his people from their sins. And the verse has already told us who we're speaking of. It's the son, the son of Mary. This firstborn of Mary that she conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, not a daughter. This is very important. This is man's work. No offense, ladies, but salvation is man's work. A man got us into this mess and a man will get us out of this mess. The source of salvation is the son of Adam. The second Adam, the last Adam, he is the son of Abraham and the son of David. And he himself, alone and by himself, will be the source of salvation. This is not a partnership. This is not a co-op. This is a sole proprietor and he owns salvation. He is the one who dispenses it and he alone. It is a monopoly. Jesus has the market cornered on all salvation. He himself will save his people from their sins. We do not help him save us. We do not contribute to his work for us. We do not enter into a partnership or a joint venture with him. He himself saves us from our sins. John 1.13 says that we are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We are born of God. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation comes down from above. She will bear a son. 
You shall call his name Yeshua. His name means the Lord is salvation. Call him Jehovah saves because salvation is of the Lord. Romans 9.16 says, So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. It does not depend on the man's will. It does not depend on the man's decision. Regeneration is not the result of our decision. It's not the result of our choice. It does not depend on us. It does not depend on our efforts, our running, our striving, our reaching, our doing anything. No, salvation depends on God who has mercy. The source of salvation is he himself. If you want to be saved, just like we heard from Stephen, you've got to get out of the way. You can't contribute anything. There is no righteousness we've ever done that adds one ounce of merit to God saving us through Christ. He himself is the Savior. I ask you this morning, where is your hope? Where is your faith? Do you understand that your faith does not save you? Faith does not save us. Jesus saves us. The object of faith is what saves us, not the faith. Faith is the means. It's a gift from God. It's the means by which we are united to the Savior. Don't have faith in faith. Put all your hope, all your faith, all your rest, all your everything in Christ. He himself, he himself is the source of salvation. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father apart from him. There is one road to heaven, and it is paved with the blood of Christ, and it is proclaimed with an empty tomb. That's the first reality of salvation. This leads us right into the second reality. Number two is the certainty of salvation. The certainty of salvation. The text says, for he himself will save. It does not say that he himself could save his people from their sins. It does not say that he will attempt to save his people from their sins. It does not say that he will try to save his people from their sins. There is no attempt here. There is nothing but accomplishment. He will do it. This is a future active indicative. This is the history being written in advance. Jesus hasn't even been born yet. And the angel says, he will accomplish this. There's no risk here. There's only reward for the Savior. He will accomplish God's will. He will save. He will deliver. He will rescue. He will remove He will rescue his people from their sins. When Jesus was dying on the cross, he proclaimed, it is finished, not it is started. Not it is done halfway, not it is attempted. He said, it is finished. And then he breathed his last. Accomplishment is what Jesus is all about, never attempting This is why the song of heaven and the praise of the four living creatures and the elders around the throne of God sounds like this. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. 
You were slaughtered, Lord Jesus. You were executed. You were murdered. And in that slaughter, you actually purchased or redeemed for God with your blood people from out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He didn't try to redeem them. He didn't try to forgive them. He didn't try to shed his blood for them. He did it at the cross. This is the certainty of salvation. If you were to ask me, why can I be so certain about the certainty of salvation? The short answer is this. Because God the Father chose us before the foundation of the world and Christ the Son redeemed us at the cross and God the Holy Spirit applied that redemption to us in his call, regeneration, and indwelling us and he's also sealed us into the day of redemption. The work of salvation is the work of our triune God from start to finish and he gets all of the glory and all of the credit And that's why salvation can be certain. And that's why we can have assurance of salvation. If we insert ourselves into this, if we're part of the source, if we are the ones who accomplished it, then we cannot have certainty of salvation. It's impossible. If we are contributing to salvation, we cannot have assurance of salvation, not in its fullest sense. I ask you this morning, what are you counting on in your life as certain? What are you counting on as a sure thing? Are you counting on the government as a sure thing? The Dallas Cowboys? Donald Trump? I mean, I'm going from bad to worse here, okay? Are you counting on a treatment plan or a prescription or a medical center? Is your spouse perhaps sitting beside of you right now that you so dearly love? Are you counting on that spouse as a sure thing, as a certainty? Until you die? Well, you shouldn't. (laughs) Are you counting on your kids to always be there for you? Are you counting on tomorrow as a certainty? Well, I would submit to you that none of those things are a certainty. The certainty here is Christ and salvation, for he himself will save. That's what we can be certain on. We don't even know if tomorrow will be there. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. That means feeling. That means emotion. I dare not trust the sweetest, most spiritual frame of mind, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is what? Okay, we need to just start believing the songs we sing. Uh, It says, all other ground is sinking sand all of it certainty is christ and christ alone that's the second reality the third reality of our salvation is the target of salvation look at the text for he himself will save his people this is the defined or definite target of his saving work It says his people. It does not say all people. It does not say that he will save the whole world. It does not say that he will save every single person. It says he will save his people. There is a defined, definite group of people that are possessed by him, that belong to him, that he would purchase for God at the cross. They're referred to as his people here. We belong to him. 
He did a work on our behalf so that he might purchase us for God. But this raises lots of questions, obviously. Who does the angel have in mind? Who does Matthew have in mind when he speaks of his people? It's very possible that Matthew here is referring back to Psalm 130, verse 8, that says this. Just listen. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Speaking of God and his saving work and his loving kindness, Psalm 130, verse 8, he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Is that what his people means? Does this mean all Jewish people of all time? Well, of course, we know the answer is no. Judas was a Jewish person. There's lots of Jewish people who are not going to be in heaven, who are not going to be saved. Just being ethnically connected to Abraham does not get you in. And so we know that it's not restrained or confined to just Israel. Okay, well then the next choice would be, okay, God does have a chosen nation, but we know from the Old Testament that there is a remnant within the chosen nation. In fact, Paul speaks of this in Romans 11.5. He says there has come to be a remnant according to God's gracious choice or God's gracious election. And so there is Israel. And then there's Israel, right? Real Israel, true Israel, the remnant within the nation. Is that who Matthew, writing to Jewish Christians, does? is is that who he means when he says his people? Well, of course, that begs the question, what about us, right? What about Gentiles? Isn't there a way for Gentiles to know God and to be saved? And of course, the answer is yes. It's a resounding yes, and it's even a yes in this gospel. A gospel written by a Jewish man about a Jewish man to Jewish Christians. He will remind us in chapter 1 in the genealogy that the gospels for Gentile sinners, Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba and Ruth. And he will remind us in chapter 2 that the gospel is for Gentile sinners, the wise men who come from the east. And then the centurion in chapter 8, who wants his son healed by Jesus, all the way out to chapter 28 in the Great Commission, we are reminded progressively in the book of Matthew that the gospel is for Gentiles. So ultimately, with with the benefit of having read the whole gospel, with the benefit of finishing the book, right? Finish the book and then you go back to this verse and we can now define his people. It is ultimately the elect from every nation, including Israel. His people then is the elect. It's Revelation 5, 9 that I've already read. They're one and the same. His elect is the target of his salvation and his saving work. Or you might think of it this way. The blood of Jesus did not miss the target. The blood of Jesus hit the bullseye. On every elect sinner and every sin they would ever commit. It's like an arrow dipped in the blood of Jesus. And he is a marksman. He is a sharpshooter. And his death would be effectual and efficient for his people. Well, this begs the next question. How do you know if you are part of his people? This is really important, isn't it? How do you know that you know? How do you know that you're saved? How do you know that you belong to Christ? Well, just using this passage, I can, I can help you with this. 
How do you know if you belong to Christ? First of all, you will confess Jesus as Lord. You will confess his name, Jesus, Yahweh saves. You will confess that he is divine, that he is Lord, that he is master, that he is God of very God in human flesh. You will agree to this. You will believe this. You will confess this publicly. And the way we do that initially as Christians is baptism. That's what it's designed for. It's designed for new believers to confess Jesus as Lord. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 that you cannot truly say Jesus is Lord and mean it apart from the Holy Spirit. So to say that and mean it is evidence that the Holy Spirit has done his work and he's in you, okay? You will also believe, or to say it another way, you will believe that Jesus is God with us. Verse 23. The virgin will be with a child, shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. They, who's the they? His people, of verse 21. Those who are saved by him will believe that he is God with us. Well, let's take it a step further. How do you know that you're part of his people? You will say that Yeshua, Jesus of Nazareth, born of the Holy Spirit, Conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, you will say that that person is God with us who has come down to save us from our sins. You will say that Jesus is God with us, come down to save me from my sins. So it's understanding God is holy, I am sinful, and Jesus Christ alone is God's solution to that great problem. He is fully God and fully man and one person died, buried, rose again. I know that I need him. I put all of my hope and faith in him. I call him God with us. I call him Yahweh saves. I call him the Lord is salvation. That's how you can know. The source of our salvation is Christ and Christ alone. The certainty then depends on him. The target is his people, number four, the nature of this salvation. The nature of this salvation. Look at the text. For he himself will save his people from or out of their sins. There it is. Now this is a surprise because we've been talking a lot up to this point about Jesus as the son of David and about Jesus as the Messiah. And so right here... Matthew's readers would expect something different. What would they expect? He will save his people from their oppressors. He will save his people from their enemies. He will save his people from the Romans. That's what you would expect right here. And that's going to be true in time. But that's not the highest priority, is it? You see, there's first a cross before the crown. Before he saves us from all of our enemies and all of our physical oppression and all of the things that would come against us, first first he must save us spiritually. Save us spiritually. That's the first priority. He will save his people from their sins. You see, salvation then is the rescue carried out by Christ 
delivering us out of or from the penalty of sin and the power of sin and one day the very presence of sin. That's what salvation is. From the punishment that our sins deserve from a holy God, from the dominion of those sins in this life, that's called sanctification, and then one day from sin's very essence, its presence, its, we will never even see it again. Now, we need to understand this carefully. This is the nature of the salvation that Jesus brings. And this is getting very confused in our day, even among professing Christians. It does not say that he will save his people from their loneliness. It does not say that he will save them from depression, discouragement or sadness or poverty or sickness or sadness or tears or even death itself. It does not say that. Not in this life. Ultimately, there is a full and final salvation that saves us from all of those things, of course, but not in this life. It does not say that it will save his people from a low IQ or funny-looking ears. I don't have earlobes, if y'all ever noticed. Or a crooked nose or a stature that you don't like or want. You see, Christians are not exempt from any of these things. Now, some of these things I've mentioned, can sin can contribute to them. Sin can be involved in them, but not always, not necessarily. He will save his people from their sins, not from blown engines, not from sinning children, not from house fires, not from dumb decisions or bad investments. And he doesn't even say that he will save us from our temptation to sin. Not even from temptation. He doesn't save us in this life from temptation. He doesn't save us in this life from trials. In fact, he sometimes saves us to those things. In time, yes, but not in this life. He saves us from our sins. The point being this, Jesus saves his people from something far worse than everything I've mentioned. There's nothing worse than sin. There's nothing worse than the wrath of God. There's nothing worse than the consequences of self-destructive sin that, if not dealt with, leads to an eternity of suffering and punishment. Sin is what's bad. Sin is what's evil. Sin is what must be, we must be rescued out of and from. And so that is the nature of the salvation that he brings. He himself, Christ and Christ alone, will deliver his people from the penalty of their sins and the power of their sins and the presence of their sins. Four realities then. The source is Yeshua and no one else. The certainty depends on Christ and no one else. The definite target is God's elect and no one else. And salvation is from our sins. And now I simply ask you, are you ready to celebrate communion? <laughs> not to be sad, not to come to this like it's a funeral. This is not a funeral, this is a feast for our soul. This is a time to rejoice and smile and be thankful and to celebrate this salvation, this great salvation that we enjoy